Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro. As always, I appreciate you tuning into the podcast. I was interested in interviewing today's guest because she's currently trying to solve the puzzle of her health. She's received some diagnoses, but nothing's totally concrete and completely clear. Many of my past guests on the podcast have a clear understanding of their condition, but not necessarily the fleshed out treatment plan. Our guest today, Akila Kadeh, is navigating all that right now, and I thought it would be helpful to hear what the process has been like. So welcome, Akila. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So happy to have you here. Thank you for your patience with scheduling and technology and all that fun stuff. Just life. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and where you're from. Yeah. So my name is Akila Kaday. I live in Oakland, California. So I'm actually from Sacramento, California, but I've been in the Bay for 18 years. And I am the founder of Change Kaday, an organizational development consulting company. We do projects exclusively in support of diversity, inclusion, and equity. So that means anything from strategic planning to executive coaching, all in support of women, people of color, and underserved communities. So um, that's that's who I am. Um, health-wise, I have a couple of things. I have tachycardia or inappropriate sinus tachycardia, um, which means a rapid heart rate and we don't know why I have a rapid heart rate. I also have coronary artery spasms, which basically feels like mini heart attacks, but without like the clogged arteries. It's just kind of like a, a spasm in your chest. So think of like a cramp or a Charlie horse, but in your heart. <laughs> and then I have orthostatic hypotension, which is essentially when you're in a seated position to standing, it the body doesn't know how to, or the heart doesn't know how to regulate getting into a, a standing position. So I'm at a falls risk, or it'll take a minute for my legs to kind of catch up to my heart and my body. Those things are probably related to pericarditis, which is where all this started. And pericarditis is the inflammation of the pericardium. And the pericardium is the lining around your heart that keeps your heart in place, and it keeps it safe. So I had that once or twice, they're not quite sure. It spread to my lungs and it spread to my ribs. And then I've been having nonstop pain and chest pain um, since then. Where I am now, I have pain on my left side that hasn't been diagnosed. And so that's why I'm still having all these different doc appointments. Fun <laughs> stuff. Well, and yeah. to figuring out your name, you also have to figure out how to pronounce all these different new conditions that you've been diagnosed <laughs> with. So there's a little yeah. theme here. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit because I believe this all started last summer, August 2017. Where did things even come from? What symptoms were you having? I was on a family trip. My mom plans family trips every uh, summer. And on the airplane there, I felt um, flutters in my chest. And I was like, oh, I'm excited. And then while at the Louvre, I felt crazy chest pain. But for the rest of the trip, I was fine. Came home on a Tuesday. And by Thursday, my heart rate like shot out 
of nowhere and I have a monitor because um, I'm a health nerd and it was 97. I had been watching TV for two hours. So to have a heart rate of 97 is too high. 100 beats per minute means that you're in tachycardia Whoa. when you're like in a resting state. So I was like, that's not normal. And then Friday, I was on my way to a client meeting and it was just a five minutes drive. And my heart rate went up, I think, to 115, 120 driving. And I felt numbness and tingling in my left arm and pain. And I was like, oh, I can't do this because it was a really big client meeting. Um, and I really wanted the contract, which I did get, by the way. Awesome. Um, so go I, like, you. Yeah, go me. Um, I pulled over. I called one of my nerdiest I'm smartest friends I know. And she's like, you're probably just dehydrated for your flight. Just like drink water and chill. So I did. And then the next day, Saturday, I woke up and I still had chest pain, rapid heart rate, pain in my arm. So of course I caught the, uh, the advice nurse and she was like, um, you need to go to the emergency room. And I was like, but are we sure? Cause I made an appointment with my doctor on Friday. You know, I'm going to see her on Monday. And she's like, do you want me to call an ambulance for you? Or are you going to, are you going to make it? And I was like, oh, I'll find a way. Were you thinking it was serious at that point? Um, yeah, again, I'm a health nerd. So when you have pain on your left side, um, when you have tingling numbness in your left arm, it could indicate some type of, you know, heart attack or stroke or some type of coronary episode. So I was like, no, I'm 34. Like this shouldn't happen. Like what's going on? And so I went, had a whole bunch of tests. I, it was not the best, um, visit, but, um, I wasn't dying. So that was good. Um, That's a huge thing to hear. <laughs> that was. And then I, I saw my doctor on Monday and I was not diagnosed with anything, but I was given, uh, metropolol, which is a beta blocker to take as needed. And later that week or a couple days later, I had a heart monitor on taped to my chest hmm. and Fun fact, I'm a twin and we made plans to celebrate our 35th birthday in Vegas. So I was the uh, 35-year-old in Vegas with, with a heart out monitor and a heart monitor at uh, Magic Mike live. <laughs> so I was like, please, heart rate, don't go up while I'm watching this because I don't want to explain this to my cardiologist of why my heart rate was so high while watching Magic Mike. And it didn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, my God. So how did it feel like, really, what was that moment like? To have a heart monitor? Yeah, in that situation. Um, you know, it was weird because I was in the emergency room all day on a Saturday. And then um, I, I didn't really tell anyone except for immediate family. And then Thursdays, I got a heart monitor. And I was like, oh, I guess this is the thing because I had to wear it for two weeks. And so I, I, I on my personal Instagram, um, I, I posted me and this heart monitor and I had an overwhelming amount of love and concern from friends. And I was like, "At this, I think this is a thing. But I, I didn't think it'd be a th 15 months. I thought it'd be like, oh, <laughs> this is cute. And then I'm like, go back to my normal life. So I don't know. That's the first week of all of this stuff that I'm dealing with now. So wild. So where does it stand now with your health and I know you had a doctor's appointment last week when we were dealing with some scheduling stuff. So what's <laughs> yeah. the latest? I had two, two in one day. You know, you're special when you have two specialist appointments in one day. <laughs> oh, yeah. So exciting. So fun. <laughs> so fun. Um, well, let me start by saying that I have nine doctors. Um, so I feel loved and I also feel very annoyed and frustrated um, because it's a lot of past the doctor. 
So last week on that particular day, I met with my cardiologist on Friday. We were supposed to meet on Monday. And uh, my cardiologist was like, you have these three things for sure, because I had to try a particular dosage of medicine. I will be on heart meds most likely for the rest of my life until a primary diagnosis is determined. So I'm in a secondary diagnosis now, as all these heart symptoms I'm having is probably because of something else going on in my body. Because I've had extensive imaging and if most everything looks fine for my heart, it's just reacting to something. And so he was like, I really feel that it's rheumatological. And I was like, okay. And um, I had an appointment on Monday with my rheumatologist and he was like, I feel it's neurological. And I was like, okay, that's funny because I already met with my neurologist and he said it wasn't, but it was something else. But I'll circle back, you know. And of course, you know, I email my neurologist and he's like, yeah, no, I just, I feel something else. So they're kind of passing me around. So um, the main doctor and all this is my primary care doc. And she's basically kind of like running point in this whole thing. Um, and so she's the one who has now referred me to UC San Francisco. So UCSF's um, cardiovascular clinic. Um, she thinks I may have some type of rare syndrome. So I'm waiting to get an appointment there to see uh, a slew of their doctors and be treated in their clinic. So that's, that's where I am. I have to take pain medication every day. But unfortunately, since I have taken so many different types of medication to get rid of the heart inflammation, the pericarditis, it resulted in duodenous, which is the inflammation, basically your duodenum or your duodenum, um, and it's like the end of your stomach, beginning of the intestines, and that is inflamed. So I can't take NSAIDs. And NSAIDs is what you typically know as Aleve or Tylenol or Ibuprofen. I can't take any of those things or anything attached to that. So that means like Vicodin and the fun stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what are you able to take then? What do I take? I, I take gabapentin. And um, gabapentin is basically like a nerve receptor. And it's great. It, it makes me feel confidently intoxicated. So, you know, that's fun. Um, so I only take it at night. Um, my neurologist wants me to take it during the day, which I experimented with. And I immediately ran a red light. So I stopped taking it oh, during wow. the day. So I live in pain during the day. I use a heating pad. Um, I distract myself with work for the most part or just really trashy TV and I'll take naps, but I look forward to the end of the day. If I know I'm not leaving, I'll I'll take some gabapentin earlier or I will just wait until bedtime when I know I'm going to sleep well because I take a lot of gabapentin at night. <laughs> and how do you feel relying on all these drugs? Um, I hate it. Short version. I'm not one for that. I'm actually a vegetarian. So I grew up a vegetarian. I was born a vegetarian. So everything was always kind of like a natural remedy. So taking vitamins or what you're eating. So to be in a position where I have to take these pills, it's very frustrating. So I like, I take a pill to protect my stomach. I take another pill for my heart. Then I take another pill for my heart. And then I take a pill for pain. Um, and then I have pills always with me just in case things aren't going well if I have to take something so it's really like limiting and when I travel I'm the person who's like carry on shakes of, <laughs> of like all these pills that part is is not fun but I also do like acupuncture I do massage different types of massage therapy I have, I have two massage therapists and an acupuncturist I also have a naturopath and I also work with an intuitive healer so um all, I'm like all doing all the things to get to a point of being healthy. 
But recently I've accepted that since it's month 15, um, that this is now part of my life um, and it's not a temporary situation. And hopefully it will change, but I'm, I have had to learn in the past really couple months, maybe two or three months to figure out how to live my life like this um, on a full-time basis. Yeah. And you mentioned being a health nerd. Would you say that you were a health nerd before, you know, 15 months ago? Yeah, because I have three degrees and they're all in health science. (laughs) (laughs) So interesting. You're not the first person I've interviewed who like just so happens to have some background professionally and how valuable it can be in what they're now dealing with. Oh, yeah. I mean, I my undergrad is in health science, community-based public health. I have a master's in public health, and then I have um, a doctorate in health science and leadership and organizational behavior. I was also pre-med, so I have a really good understanding of what's going on. And being that I worked in um, health care from the hospital to the patient experience, the workforce experience to uh, patient delivery, clinical experience, and then the supportive industry around that – it's how I'm able to navigate the healthcare system now because it's right. awful. It's it's pretty bad. And I've had to drop the I'm a doctor too card when it comes to certain physicians mm. who are stereotyping me as a you know young person who probably partied too much or um, as a uneducated black woman. Um, so it's like, you know, yeah, there's one time, I think it was ER visit number four out of five. I was going like every month. I was like, hey, what am I doing this week? I'm going to go to the ER. But um, the, a triage uh, physician was like, well, you don't look like you're in pain. And I already told him. Oh, I, was, I yeah. would lose my mind over that one. And I told him I was in a, a seven. So I said, funny story. I was sitting here by a primary care physician. I went to on-call physician in my practice and she said the only choices I had was that she would call the ambulance for me or I would have to drive myself here. And being that it was less than a mile, I was able to drive myself here. And I called my cardiologist on the way to let him know that I was I was headed here. And uh, I have a doctorate. And um, I also don't want to be here either, like how you don't want to be here. But I know that if two health professionals are telling me to come here, it's serious. And I also take care of myself and run a business. So even though it may not look like I'm in pain, I can guarantee you I'm in pain because, again, I don't want to be here. So I'm going to need you to run these following tests. And he looked at me and was like, oh, and he did. But I don't like having to do that at all. So your firm prepares people to overcome barriers in the workforce so there can be more opportunities for women and people of color. Do you think that there are any similar barriers existing for women and people of color who are seeking treatment for invisible illnesses? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I did a lot of my research on that for my doctoral program. And so unfortunately, I knew exactly what I was getting into. And we already know that women are viewed differently for heart problems. But there's a difference when it comes to women of color and heart issues. Because for women um, and women of color, it is, oh, you're just stressed out. Oh, you have anxiety. Oh, you're probably having a, you know, a panic attack and an anxiety attack, you know, but with color, it goes a little bit further because there's not a lot of diversity when it comes to the professions and healthcare and direct service. Right. So, um, there, how that doctor talked to me, he was a white male. He was just assuming because I didn't look like I wasn't crying or my face wasn't red because he couldn't see that my face was red or I was hot or uncomfortable that I wasn't in pain, whereas it'd be different, particularly maybe so for a white woman. 
And the example I have for that is probably the last ER visit I went to five. Um, I came into the ER room the same time as a white woman. She looked upper middle class. She had a very, very big diamond. Um, we were around the same size. She had to be in her 40s. So we went through the same process, EKG, um, drawing blood. But when she came out of the triage room, she had an IV. I didn't. And then she went to the room before me. My bed was next to hers. Never got an IV, but I was told I was dehydrated, but I never got an IV. Hmm. And um, I sat there for a while, pain scale seven, blah, blah, blah. She was sent there by her primary doc. I was sent there by my primary doc. And um, she shared that she has panic attacks and anxiety, and her doctor's aware of that. And I don't. I'm depressed. I have severe depression, but I don't have uncontrollable anxiety, and I don't have panic attacks. For her treatment, they said, hey, your EKG is a little ischemic. Mine wasn't ischemic, meaning a little erratic, right? And I had just a rapid heart rate. So it was tachycardium EKG. And so the on-call doc for the ER said, hey, so, um, you know, we're going to admit you to the hospital. And this probably is just around your anxiety and your panic attacks that you have. Oh, I see you're getting a little bit of anxiety right now. We're going to give you some Ativan to calm you down. But Dr. King, he's one of the best doctors here. We're just going to monitor your heart overnight just to make sure you're fine. And what I got was, you're complicated, so we're just going to discharge you. And I said, but I'm in pain. What are we going to do about the pain? Oh, uh, do you want some Vicodin? And I have a wristband. I'm actually allergic to Vicodin. And I said, I have a wristband on. I'm allergic to Vicodin. Okay. Uh, what do you want? Percocet? And I was like, why am I doing I know Percocet's not going to bother me. So I said, okay. He prescribed one Percocet for me to take. And I got a prescription for Percocet. It was late. So I couldn't get the prescription filled until the next day. Um, but I had my one Percocet. They didn't ask how I got there, how I was leaving. I drove myself. Uh, because I lived three minutes away from the, the hospital, I knew I could drive myself home because I know that it's going to take at best 15 minutes for Percocet to get into my system, but closer to 30. Depends on how much food you have in your stomach, right? I knew that. And so I took Percocet so I get out of pain and come home. And I, you know, came home by myself. And I literally cried because I was so mad. I was so mad. I had a friend who stopped by one or two friends, I think, that time that stopped by. And at that time, I had one of my friends who happened to be white who was with me. And she looked at me when she heard that whole thing. And I was like, yeah, well, this is my life. And at one time, the monitor dropped. It was this, my blood pressure went really low. They didn't do anything. They just didn't care. They didn't care. And then I haven't gone back um, since. So I've been trying to just work with doctors. But that was a clear discrepancy of how things were treated. I had enough history where I could have also been admitted. Not that I want to be admitted to the hospital, but I could have also been admitted and I could have been monitored overnight. My heart could have been monitored overnight. But that wasn't the case for me. So here I am fighting a journey that probably would have been a lot less if I were a white woman. But I'm not. So I have to advocate for myself. Um, I have to put myself in positions where I'm going to be stereotyped for not being smart or being too smart or being too educated or being too privileged or whatever it is. But I have to do it because I want to get to some type of end result so I can have um, a primary diagnosis. I'm sorry. That's so horrible. I hate hearing those stories. I know that it happens, but it really it's so fascinating how you can be side by side with this woman going through such a similar experience and so clearly be treated differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, So fascinating. Well, and, and you brought up the word advocate. And I think that's a big theme on the podcast here of, you know, having to be your own advocate. And it's amazing that you have 
this medical background and that you're a health nerd and that you're, you know, well informed and obviously know your body, but you are still seeking some answers and trying to figure out what's going on and hoping that the quote unquote experts are going to support and, you know, advocate for you too. But it's clear that you really have to push in order to get the kind of service that you deserve and the care that you deserve. Mm -hmm. So when we were going back and forth scheduling the conversation, something came up about how you acknowledge how you used to be afraid to tell your clients about your health Mm -hmm. and that things shifted and you were concerned that, you know, are they not going to want to work with me? Are they going to think that I'm going to flake out because I have a doctor's appointment, whatever that looks like. And it was something that I said I could majorly relate to. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience has been like professionally in sharing with your clients or when you decided it was important to share with your clients what you've been going through? Yeah, I mean, I, um, yeah, I did not want to lose money, <laughs> but it came down to it because I have medical bills um, and I wanted to keep money coming in. And I, but I really just didn't want to be stereotyped and I didn't want to be pitied. I'm a Virgo. I'm independent. Um, I want to take care of myself. So to be in a position where someone would think that I couldn't do something was a hard place for me to be. But um, I I think when I started talking about it publicly, I received a positive response and I wasn't really prepared for that. What does publicly mean? Any type of public speaking engagement I had, I I would talk about um, this heart thing because it's been named different things throughout the past 15 months. I would just talk about wherever I was um, Mm -hmm. and incorporate it with whatever the talk may be. Women empowerment, um, public health, diversity, inclusion, whatever I'm talking about. Um, and throw it in there. And when I did that, there's be people who'd say like, oh my God, I wore a heart monitor or um, I felt that way or thank you so much for just like being your true authentic self. And I was like, wait, what? What? (laughs) Is that what that is? I can, you know, I could do that. Um, And then people are just really fine and and open and and responsive to it. They don't treat me differently. Um, Of course, it's like, how are you feeling? How's it going? How's your health? Um, And Particularly for a lot of people that I I coach, I do a lot of executive coaching. Um, There were times where I couldn't uh, drive like further than, I don't know, like maybe 10 minutes. And so I couldn't go to some clients in the various different parts of the Bay Area. And so they were totally fine with just, you know, video chatting, totally fine with me being in sweats, um, propped up with my heating pad, you know, talking to them, not me feeling like I'm not looking like my best self. But, you know, um, I realized that I I was still able to still do my job. Yes, it was in a different capacity than what I would have wanted to be in a fabulous outfit and out and about and like in their office or space. But I was still able to do it. You know, so knowing that I could tell people what I'm experiencing and how I'm feeling and what's going on and how I'm like a health puzzle and still being able to get new clients, build my company, have um, a wonderful team. It is pretty amazing. And then the other part that I didn't bank on was that people were inspired by me. And I was like, but I'm just like, I have to do this. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like I'm doing it to inspire people. It's just like, you know, this is my job and I love what I do, but it was motivating, inspiring other people. So then there ended up being um, an added bonus and I loved it. That's so cool. I love how that works. I found that that's been similar with my business too, but I'm curious when you say people have asked how you're doing and how are you feeling? How do you feel hearing that from your clients and people professionally? I like it. I think it's great. I, I think it shows that people, you know, care and that they're human. Um, for me, sometimes I'm a broken record 
And that part's, you know, like a little annoying. So it all depends. Sometimes I'll give people more details of people. I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. You know, doctor's appointments on deck or I'm feeling better. Thanks for asking. Um, if I don't really want to get into it because it does take a lot of time and energy to talk about how much you hurt. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I don't want to give it that much time. And I don't want to give it that much energy because I deal in this every day. I feel it. It's there. It happens. Once I get up from talking to you, it's going to take me a minute to get up. Like it's always around. So I don't always want to like necessarily go into detail and talk about it. Um, but the people who care, there's this weird dynamic where they say, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, but it's not your fault. It has nothing to do with mm. you. It has nothing to do with you. And I wish people wouldn't say, I'm so sorry, because that is really frustrating to me, you know? Um, I agree so much on that front. Right? I hate when people say that. And it goes back to, I feel like I say this on every single episode of no one knows what the right words are. So they're trying to figure out how to say the right thing, mm-hmm. but there's not one right thing to say. Right. So that's what they feel comfortable saying. And it feels like what's right for them. Yeah. But I'm sure if you were to have a conversation and say, hey, I don't really feel like, you know, I'm so sorry. It, it just, I, I don't want you to feel bad for me. How can you provide them with language that could be valuable going forward for them to feel empowered and for you to get what you need out of it? So I would say the best thing to say is, how can I help you or how can I support you? Mm-hmm. And by doing that, you know, sometimes I know it's like, well, I have to go to the grocery store and I don't know if I have enough energy to do that. You know, can you come with me? And other times I'm like, I don't know, but thank you. I just like knowing someone is there to help me or support me. Um, but a lot of times I'll just say like, can you just check on me? Just like send a text, ask how I'm doing, you know, and then that I, goes such a long yeah, way Yeah, because then I don't feel alone. Like I live by myself. I'm single. Like I don't have anyone out here. So I have to do a lot of these things on my own. So I have to rely on my friends to help me do things, you know? So it's important to like have those, you know, relationships, but sometimes it's rough. So if they just kind of ask how I can support you, then it's easier for me to remember or think, or at least know that that person is available for me. Absolutely. And so who is your support system? Are there people that don't live nearby or is it these friends that you're sort of training to be supportive? <laughs> well, again, I'm a twin, so but my sister lives in L.A., so um, she's super supportive. I have a lot of work in L.A., so when I'm in L.A., she like picks me up at the airport, she drives me around, she comes to client things, so she's super supportive when she's there. We also share a dog, so um, there's a time wow. yeah, where I couldn't walk my dog um, without going into tachycardia, so I didn't have him for the longest time. How do you share a dog when you live in different cities? He flies. He flies with us. So he goes under the seat. Yeah, he loves it. He loves to fly. He loves his carrier. He loves having two mommies and two homes. Um, It's great. So she had to take care of him for a really long time. I just got him back um, a few months ago. And so he's part of like my health routine of, of daily walks. We take long walks and stuff. And that's how I celebrate the little wins. But I've had a lot of friends who are near and far that have sent cards and flowers and gifts. One in particular, her name is Vita. She lives in Chicago and she actually makes like heating pads, which are Hmm. the best and they're the best kind. You're not supposed to use plug-in heating pads because they have like 
signals and radiation in there. It's not really good for your body and your energy and your function. So they're like rice packs. Um, so she sent those and I couldn't eat chocolate for the longest time. So she sent cookies and brownies made of carob so I could have that. Um, so those things like make a huge difference. And then my closest friend here is Emily and she's a fellow doc. She's a PhD and she's taking me to the emergency room a couple times and she makes sure I eat and she texts and she's always on top of my appointments and, um, procedures and it's the best. Um, and then across the street, I have a Turkish family that I love, my Turkish mom, Julia, and she feeds me all the time, literally, all the time. She's <laughs> taking me to appointments, um, and she gives me, like, that mom-ness that I don't have because my mom isn't close by. So it's nice to have that. Sounds like some really good people. Yeah, but, you know, when it comes down to it, I have to deal with this every day, so I have to find the strength to get out of bed, um, <laughs> to try to, like, clean when I can. I don't really cook as much as I used to because I, in so much pain, I'll leave a burner on or I'll leave the food out. I'll burn something. So I'm, you know, I have a lot of, I order in a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but you know, you just find a way to like, um, you know, make it work. Absolutely. So what advice would you give to someone, especially a woman of color who may be navigating some new health challenges? in how to manage this and how to advocate for themselves. First thing is to know your rights. Um, as patients in general, we all have rights, access to our records, care. We can always look for another physician. You can ask for help. And certain health companies, insurance companies, and hospitals will have patient advocates that you can take advantage of. Two, I would say do your research. So if um, doctors are saying you have this or that, do your research and see, um, which would be three, just make sure you have a good relationship with your doctor. If you don't, you can switch because there's hundreds of doctors in your network that you can go to. I think that's such an important yeah. one. I think it's yeah. something that people forget and they maybe keep going back to the same person and complaining about them. And it's like, you know, there's lots of others out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is. You know, it's one of the, it's, you know, it's also like a therapist. People are like, well, I didn't really like my therapist. Well, why'd you stick with them? <laughs> You know, you're paying money. It's your time. It's your energy. It's your health. Yeah, totally. It's like go to someone that you can connect with. I have followed doctors. My cardiologist is moving to a different practice. I'm moving with him um, because I have a relationship and I value that relationship. It's important, particularly for women and women of color, to not feel rushed during your appointments. If you feel rushed, that's not the doctor for you. You need to be able to sit there and ask questions, particularly if you're in a position where you're puzzled or you're complicated and it's not cut and dry. Um, you know, not that I want cancer, but certain cancers are cut and dry. So you have a formulaic experience that you can kind of go through and the doctors you're going to see. But someone like me that's multidisciplinary, I have to be the person to connect the pieces together and also the people together. So that's why the relationship with the doctor is important because you want them to be responsive. So if you have those three things, you know, you're going to be pretty good. But I would guess bonus fourth one, trying to keep it simple <laughs> would be don't be afraid to tell people how you feel because it's your health and it's your body. And so if they aren't getting it and they're not listening to you or whatever, or you were unclear and you want more clarification, ask the question. You can have questions prepared ahead of time. You can take the time to write stuff down, but don't ever feel like you don't know what just happened in an appointment because that's a waste of money and it's a waste of time. So yeah, do that. And then use social media. People are pissing you off too. <laughs> Tell me more about that. 
Um, so for instance, like being on a podcast about an invisible disease is one way to kind of talk about what you're doing, (laughs) um, and get the message out there. But if you're having a hard time with the health system, tweet about it, let them know because you can connect with other people who felt the same way or gone through same, the similar type of situation, but they could potentially respond, um, and also fill out those evaluations that they send you. Cause I have written some very detailed things about how people have not treated me fairly and it was clear racial bias. And I've received phone calls from my health system to figure out what happened. And I have to throw out my cards. I literally used to work on the workforce experience. So I know what people are supposed to do as far as providing care and being fair and kind and um, use that as a way to try to, you know, alert people to what's going on or fairness. And again, if it's a particular problem with a physician, move to the next one. If you're in the emergency room, you can ask for another physician too, if you're not clicking with them as well. You may have to wait longer, but it could potentially be worth it. I'd like to think I'm the queen of giving feedback. And it's nice to hear that stuff like that is actually taken into consideration Mm -hmm. or places are digging further to learn more about what went wrong or, you know, why a doctor treated you a certain way. So it's nice to hear that that's taken into thought with what they do next with it. So this was extremely helpful. And I think that those tips, three plus bonus number four, (laughs) were really valuable for people to really consider when navigating these challenging times. And like you said, it's not like you have this very cutthroat diagnosis. It's sort of all being pieced together and that's your responsibility. Mm -hmm. So I think it's something that a lot of people are going through um, and listeners, I'm sure, So where can people learn more about you, the work that you're doing and connect with you? Yeah. So um, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook at Change Cadet. So C-H-A-N-G-E-C-A-D-E-T, like cadet. So Change Cadet. And you can find all my information there. You can also visit my website, changecadet.com. Feel free to email me. Feel free to slide in my DMs um, and ask questions. I am always happy to answer them. And yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.